Please turn with me this morning, if you will, in your copy of God's Word to Daniel chapter 5. Daniel 5, verses 1 to 31. And let's ask the Lord for His help as we approach His Word. Let's pray. Father, we praise You for all Your works are right and all Your ways are just. Open the eyes of our hearts that we may understand what you have written. Write these truths on our hearts by your Spirit, that we may not sin against you, but instead look to our Savior and be eager to do what is pleasing in your sight. Lord, would you conquer every rebel power within us that resists the obedience of faith. Fill us with your Spirit and reign over our hearts, that we might delight to do your will, especially in the face of trial and opposition. Be glorified through your church. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. In December of 2006, that's 16 years ago, a group of self-proclaimed atheists named the RRS, the Rational Response Squad, issued a challenge to the world on the internet and they called it a the blasphemy challenge. The blasphemy challenge. The aim of this project was to invite young people to record a video of themselves denying God and to then post it on YouTube. Of course, many atheists were thrilled about this. Many celebrity atheists such as Christopher Hitchens and Daniel Dennett and Penn Gillette all participated in the project. And the point of that challenge, aside from provoking Christians, was basically this. Come forward, they said. Celebrate your atheist pride. Damn your soul forever on YouTube. Who cares? There's no God anyway. Of course, there was an incentive for doing this. The first 1,001 video uploaders were given a free DVD of the atheist film called The God Who Wasn't There. This was an independent documentary written and directed by a man named Brian Fleming. Now, I'm not sure if you remember this particular controversy or perhaps this is the first time you're hearing of it, but it did create a stir and quite a lot of discussion in the evangelical world around Christmas time in 2006. However, however, the point that I want to make this morning is that this sort of human defiance against God has been around since the garden, since the fall. You see, history is full of examples of people who have lifted themselves up against God and mocked Him. So I can think of Pharaoh who said to Moses, Who is the Lord that I should let His people go? Or take that employee of the White Star Shipping Company who said of the Titanic, Not even God can sink the ship. Or I can think of those Jews in Jesus' day who heaped abuses on him and then mocked him saying, Oh, if you are the Son of God, come down from the cross. Or the German philosopher Friedrich Nietzsche who famously said, God is dead and we have killed him. However, no matter what people might say about God, the scriptures that is God's own words about himself, make it clear that a day is coming, the day of the Lord, 
when he will judge the proud and the defiant. Listen to what Proverbs 16, 4-5 says. The Lord has made everything for its purpose, even the wicked for the day of trouble. Everyone who is arrogant in heart is an abomination to the Lord. Be assured he will not go unpunished. Now in Daniel chapter 5, we are told of the story of an arrogant king who defied the Lord and was judged immediately. If you were here last week, you will remember that God did something similar to King Nebuchadnezzar, the king of ancient Babylon. Now though Nebuchadnezzar had heard about the one true God and his coming eternal kingdom through the prophet Daniel, he nevertheless continued in his pride and he refused to submit to God's word and God's kingship over his life. And so one day after warning him yet again, God judged him and took away his kingdom. Nebuchadnezzar was driven away from men and he lived with the animals in the land. He did that because God took away his mind and gave him the mind of a beast. And at the end of the period that the Lord had appointed for him, Nebuchadnezzar lifted up his eyes to heaven in humility. He acknowledged his folly and the Lord then restored both his sanity and his kingdom back to him. And at the end of that account, you can look at the end of chapter 4, we see Nebuchadnezzar trusting and delighting in the sovereign rule of God over all things and especially over his people. Look at chapter 4, verse 37. Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and extol and honor the king of heaven for all his works are right and his ways are just. And those who walk in pride, he is able to humble See, Nebuchadnezzar agreed that he deserved what he got. And he put his trust in the Lord. Now, there was a point to Nebuchadnezzar's humiliation. Nebuchadnezzar's humiliation was recorded in the book of Daniel to encourage the fearful Israelites in exile that no matter how bad things may have seemed, they needed to know that God was sovereign over all earthly kings and kingdoms and that he would deliver his people. They needed to know as Nebuchadnezzar confessed himself that none can stay his hand. You see, the sovereign Lord would fulfill his redemptive purposes for his people. And this is why they should have continued to trust in him even in exile. This is why we see chapters 4 and 5, two accounts of God humbling two Gentile kings sandwiched between chapters 3 and 6. Two accounts of God's deliverance of his people. Why even in chapter 4, the writer tells us three times that the Most High rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom he will. And he will tell us that again in chapter 5 verse 21. God is the one who ordains all things. God is the one who ordained Nebuchadnezzar to take the Israelites captive. He is the one who used Nebuchadnezzar as his servant to judge the idolatrous people of Israel for their covenant unfaithfulness. He is the one who ordained that they live in Babylon. God is the true sovereign who sets up kings and removes kings and therefore he is the one, the only one. He alone is able to sustain his people in exile. See, these demonstrations of God's 
sovereign power over arrogant rulers that we see in Daniel. They were meant to encourage the people of Israel to trust in his word in the face of every trial and to not give in to idolatry. See, the book of Daniel calls for defiant faith. Defiant faith in the face of worldly opposition because God had given his people a sure hope. You know, God tells his people in the book that his everlasting kingdom will be established through his Messiah who will come and deliver his people from their sins. He will crush every other earthly kingdom. He will usher in a reign of everlasting righteousness. Now on this side of the cross, we know this has been fulfilled, don't we? The New Testament writers tell us that Jesus inaugurated his kingdom through his death and resurrection because he fulfilled all the prophecies of the Old Testament. We have a better hope, a better hope through which we can draw near to God. And just like Israel in exile, we too must now live as strangers and exiles in this world, looking forward to the day when Christ will return to consummate his kingdom. And in the face of our trials, we must remember, like the Israelites, that the Lord is sovereign over our trials. Christ is reigning now, and he is the head of his church. He will return, and he will make all things new. And of this hope, we have been given a guarantee. God himself, the Holy Spirit, abides in us, and he is with us. Now, while Nebuchadnezzar repented of his folly and submitted himself to God's holy kingship, King Belshazzar didn't. You see, in Belshazzar, we find a king who is not only self-absorbed and arrogant, but he openly demonstrates contempt for God. He is a profane man who delights in provoking God and in so doing, invites his judgment. You see, Nebuchadnezzar was restored but Belshazzar perishes. Now what did he do? What did this Belshazzar do? Well, look at the text. The passage tells us, chapter 5, verse 1, that he threw a feast. And so that's the first thing we'll see in this narrative, a profane feast. Look at verse 1. King Belshazzar made a great feast for a thousand of his lords and drank wine in front of the thousand. Now it's important to know where we are in the book of Daniel and who this king is. Remember that the first deportation of the exiles to Babylon took place in 605 BC under Nebuchadnezzar. We saw that in chapter 1. All of this took place exactly as the prophet Jeremiah predicted. He prophesied that the Jews would be carried away into exile and there they would remain until a period of 70 years. That's Jeremiah 29 verse 10. The book of Daniel spans those 70 years. Now this passage, chapter 5, ends with Belshazzar being killed and the Medo-Persian Empire coming into power. So Babylon fell to the Medo-Persians in 539-538 BC. So that's about give or take 67, 68 years. Now, what does that tell you? Well, number one, it tells you that it's almost time for the Babylonian captivity to come to an end. And number two, what Daniel told Nebuchadnezzar in chapter two is coming to pass. The head of gold was now being succeeded by the kingdom of silver, the Medo-Persians. 
And thirdly, we get a sense of Daniel's age, don't we? You see, depending on how old Daniel was when he first arrived in Babylon, if he was in his early teens, he's probably now in his late 70s. If he was in his mid-teens, he's probably in his early 80s. Now at this point, Nebuchadnezzar has been dead for a long time. He died in 562 BC. This is 25 years later. 25 years later, it was no longer Babylon the Great, as he called it. Nebuchadnezzar was succeeded by three kings. The first one was called Evil Merodach. Now with the first name like that, you can only imagine what his reign would have been like. He was followed by Neri Glissar and then by Labashi Marduk. And then by the time we get to our story in Daniel 5, Babylon was ruled by King Nabonidus. Now, Nabonidus is an interesting character. He was a very ardent devotee of the moon god, Sin. He was so passionate about worshipping Sin that he worried the priests in Babylon. They thought that Nabonidus might want to replace their chief god, Marduk, with, with Sin. And so to keep the local priests from revolting, they relocated Nabonidus to Taima in the North Arabian desert. That's in Saudi Arabia. Now in Nabonidus' absence, his son Belshazzar served as co-regent. Now King Belshazzar was not only arrogant and pretentious, he was also a scoffer and he felt very secure in his wickedness. Look at the text. The text tells us that he made a great feast for a thousand of his lords, his, his noblemen. You know, these are all the important people in your kingdom you want to bribe and keep happy just to get your work done. Now, historians tell us that while this was happening, while this party was going on, the Medo-Persians were already making headway into the city. And yet here was the king at ease partying. Drinking wine in front of the thousand. Now that's an important detail. Drinking wine in front of the thousand. You see, it was common for kings to throw large parties. And so that's not strange. But they would usually do it in a separate room. They would sit in a separate room with a few important guests. And here the writer tells us that he drank in front of thousands. See, this man has a flair for drama. For the theatrical, he was showing off. This was no stately affair. This was a celebration of debauchery. So think of the guy who's doing shots at the bar. And the crowds are cheering him on. Right? That's Belshazzar. He's full of himself. Loving the praises of, the Lord, of his lords. Getting drunk. Celebrating the sin of drunkenness. His wives, his concubines, you've got wine and women. What could go wrong? He's playing to the crowd. He's playing to the crowd. Beloved, pride always performs to a crowd. Always performs to a crowd. When someone is self-obsessed and self-centered, whether they are loud and boastful or whether they are drowning in self-pity, it's both pride, in their idolatry, they're always trying to meet some standard. You will either look to Christ and desire to please Him according to His word in faith, or you will look to human standards, the expectations of a world that is perishing. 
proud people who resist the counsel of others and are unteachable, those who are, as the Bible says, wise in their own eyes, always exalt themselves because they're aiming for a standard that they like. You know, one author writes, we try to exalt ourselves by meeting other people's standards of acceptability. Think about it. What would be the point of doing thunderous slam dunks or of performing rock songs if everybody just yawned? You see, our godness being known and admired and envied depends on the standards and opinions of people just as driven as we are. Isn't that how celebrity culture works? Isn't that how fashion trends work? Friends, just think about it. If every time you said something provocative or offered foolish counsel and the people around you lovingly corrected you, they defined your sin, they called you to repentance, they pointed you to Christ, if that happened every time you did that, by God's grace, your pride would slowly shrivel up and die. But if the people closest to you offered you a different standard, if they said nothing or were even entertained by your foolish talk, your pride would grow like a parasite, feeding off their delight and feeding off yours. You see, Belshazzar is doing this because he knows his people love it. Beloved, what sin are you in love with? What sin are you regularly indulging in because of the thrill of worldly approval that it provides? Isn't it true that the woman who dresses immodestly continues to dress in that way because she loves the attention? Isn't it true that the young man who does not want to listen to his pastor's assessment of his spiritual health responds defensively because he's receiving great accolades about his spiritual condition from elsewhere? But friends, beware. Pride is a strange parasite. It will eat away at your soul while keeping you aggressively focused on yourself. See, Belshazzar is so wrapped up with himself that not only has God become irrelevant to him, he does not fear to defy him. This is when pride is seen for what it truly is, idolatry. It despises God and sets up the self as God. Belshazzar turns out to be not just a beast in his pride and folly, but he turns out to be a raging beast, growling gnashing his teeth against God himself. We know this because the writer tells us what was involved in this drunken display. Look at verses 2 to 4. Belshazzar, when he tasted the wine, commanded that the vessels of gold and of silver that Nebuchadnezzar, his father, had taken out of the temple in Jerusalem be brought, that the king and his lords, his wives and his concubines might drink from them. Now the first time we are introduced to these vessels is in chapter 1, if you remember that. Nebuchadnezzar had brought these vessels from the temple in Jerusalem and he had put them in his treasury. They were sort of his victory souvenirs. 
Ezra tells us that there were 5,400 of these vessels in Babylon. Imagine that. Now, Nebuchadnezzar did this because in his mind, this meant that his god, Marduk, had won. And the Lord of Israel had lost. Of course, Nebuchadnezzar later learned that the Lord was not just some tribal deity. No, he was the sovereign king over all. He was king not just in Israel, but over all the earth. But Belshazzar goes one step further in his arrogance. He says, bring out the holy vessels of the God of these exiles. Let's humiliate him for his loss. You know, now these vessels in God's temple were set apart for worship. They symbolized God's holy presence and his power and his purity. Under the Mosaic law, if you even unintentionally desecrated or profaned a holy thing, a guilt offering had to be made. And here was an intoxicated Belshazzar saying, let's taunt this God. Let's rub it in his face and show him how much we scorn him. What a loser. You know, this is something that even Nebuchadnezzar had not dared to do. Belshazzar wants to humiliate God by showing his disdain for the holy things of God. You disdain God by disdaining the things of God. Friends, I hope you understand how this works. You know, if you stayed out all night partying with your friends and then you came home and you see your wife throwing all your stuff out of the balcony from your apartment, you get the message, don't you? She's not angry with your stuff. She's angry with you. Contempt for your stuff, that which belongs to you, demonstrates contempt for you. That's what's happening here. Remember when Saul was persecuting Christians and he was stopped in his tracks by Jesus? What did Jesus say to him? Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? How do people today mock, ridicule, and dishonor God? By mocking, ridiculing, and dishonoring his people. His living temples. How does 2 Timothy 2.21 describe Christians, believers? Paul describes them as vessels set apart as holy, useful in the hands of the master. Look at verse 3. Then they brought in the golden vessels that had been taken out of the temple, the house of God in Jerusalem. Notice how the holiness of these vessels is emphasized. They are from the temple. They are from the house of God. They are from Jerusalem. It's like the writer is saying, don't do it, don't do it, don't do it. You know, this is a blasphemous thing. But this blasphemous desecration proceeds. Look at the text. And the king and his lords, his wives and his concubines drank from them. And if that wasn't bad enough, look at verse 4. They drank wine and praised the gods of gold and silver, bronze, iron, wood and stone. Every one of those idols were made from creation. With human hands. And they were toasting to their pagan deities with these vessels. Think of how the exiles, the Israelites would have felt when they heard this was going on at the feast. You know, 1987, an American artist and photographer named Andres Serrano created a, a piece that he called Piss Christ. 
He had taken a crucifix and then he placed it in a jar of his own urine. And that was art. Not only was it favorably received, but it also won an award. How do you feel about that? Well, that's how the exiles would have felt. Belshazzar and his people were eating and drinking judgment upon themselves. Now, I know that some of you might be thinking, you know, this whole affair sounds horrible, irreverent towards God. It's vulgar. It's distasteful. But beloved, isn't that what we do when we sin? We know, we know according to scripture, 2 Timothy 2.21, that we are God's holy vessels set apart for holy purposes. We know according to 1 Corinthians 6 that our bodies belong to the Lord. It's described as the temple of the Holy Spirit. We know according to Romans 6 and Romans 12 that we must present our bodies as instruments of righteousness, our members holy and acceptable to him. We know all these things, and yet we prostitute our vessels to sin. If we give up our minds to lustful imaginations, if we feast our eyes on pornography, if we give our tongues to hurtful and foolish talk, and if we give our hands and feet to laziness, we might as well be at Belshazzar's party, intoxicated with our selfish desires, toasting to our gods while demonstrating contempt for our Savior. No, I think we need to take a close look in the mirror before we look down on someone like Belshazzar. Beloved, God is not mocked. And Belshazzar is about to learn that. As soon as Belshazzar does this, God's presence shows up and terrifies the arrogant king. And that brings us to our second point. We see a petrified king. Look at verses 5 to 9. Immediately the fingers of a human hand appeared and wrote on the plaster of the wall of the king's palace opposite the lampstand. Now I don't think the writer mentions the lampstand merely to say that this happened in a well-lit place where all could see. This is probably one of the lampstands taken from the temple. Those lampstands were made of gold in the shape of a tree. It symbolized royalty and holiness and unity. Those adjectives can easily be used to describe God's word itself. And if you remember, the function of the lampstand was not just to illuminate the temple, but to throw light on the table of presence. On the table of presence. It was to remind Israel that true life was to be found in God's presence. Now if you look down at verse 24, this hand is from where? It's from the Lord's holy presence itself. And Belshazzar could not stand the terror of God's holiness. Look at the text. And the king saw the hand as it wrote. He wasn't imagining it in his drunken state. He actually saw it. Verse 6, then the king's color changed. Literally, the brightness of his face changed. The blood drained from his face and he became pale. And his thoughts alarmed him. He was frightened. His limbs gave way. Now that's an interesting phrase. The text literally 
reads that the knots of his loins were loosed. The knots of his loins were loosed. What does that mean? It means he wet his royal pants. That's what it means. You can see how the writer mocks the king and the folly of his idolatry in this passage. So much for his bravado. You know, the great king Belshazzar, ruler of Babylon, the one who controls everything, can't even control his own bladder in the presence of the Lord. His limbs gave way and his knees knocked together. The man was petrified. So much for his brazen defiance. Verse 7, the king called loudly. He screamed. He's panicking, isn't he? To bring in the enchanters, the Chaldeans and the astrologers. Oh, these guys again. You see how this repeats itself in the narrative? It's a sad recurrence in the narrative. That in a moment of crisis, these kings turn to worldly wisdom instead of turning to the Lord. Brothers, I wonder if this is characteristic of your life. In moments of great stress, in moments of need or crisis or trial, where do you turn for help? Do you take it to the Lord in prayer? Do you turn to his word? Do you seek out the word-saturated counsel of mature members? Or do you turn to cultural solutions, pragmatic solutions? You know, just like these wise men, they will fail you again and again. Brothers, this world is spiritually bankrupt. Spiritually bankrupt. God has judged the wisdom of the world. Just like one wise man warned us in Proverbs 14 verse 12. There is a way that seems right to a man, but its end is the way to death. Look at the text. The king declared to the wise men of Babylon, whoever reads this writing and shows me its interpretation shall be clothed with purple and have a chain of gold around his neck and shall be third ruler in the kingdom. Now, those are very tantalizing rewards. You know, apart from the fine clothes and the gold, being third ruler was no small position. You know, this is what it means. Nabonidus was the first, Belshazzar the second, co-regent, and so whoever could interpret this writing would be the third highest in the kingdom. But it also shows you that Belshazzar is desperate, isn't he? Verse 8, then all the king's wise men came in, but they could not read the writing or make known to the king the interpretation. Then King Belshazzar was greatly alarmed and his color changed. And his lords were perplexed. They had no answers. Until someone remembered Daniel. The only sensible person was the one who was not in the room. The one who was not participating in the debauchery. But she comes in when she hears all the ruckus. And that brings us to our third point. We get to see a prudent queen. Look at verses 10 to 12. The queen, this is probably the queen mother, since she simply arrives unannounced and speaks with authority. The queen, because of the words of the king and his lords, came into the banqueting hall. And the queen declared, O king, live forever. Let not your thoughts alarm you or your color change. Calm down, she says. There is a man in your kingdom in whom is the spirit of the holy gods. In the days of your father, light and understanding and wisdom like the wisdom of the gods were found in him. 
This was a man who had profound insight and understanding and we all knew that it wasn't from himself, she says. And King Nebuchadnezzar, your father, your father the king. Now when she says father, Nebuchadnezzar was not his natural father, but he was his father by ancestry. You know, like the Jews were able to say in Jesus' day, Abraham is our father. And that's what he means. She says, your father, King Nebuchadnezzar, made him chief of the magicians, enchanters, Chaldeans, and astrologers. Because an excellent spirit, knowledge, and understanding to interpret dreams, explain riddles, and solve problems. Again, that's a very interesting phrase. The word for solve pro problems is the same word used for loosing the knots of your loins. You can see the mockery that's going on. He can unloose some knots for you, she says. To explain riddles and solve problems were found in this Daniel. This man was extraordinary, she says. And then she adds this little detail about Daniel, this Daniel, this Daniel whom the king named Belteshazzar. Now let Daniel be called and he will show the interpretation. Now we know that everything the queen has said about Daniel is true. After Nebuchadnezzar's death, we don't know if Daniel continued in the same office that Nebuchadnezzar gave him. When we look at Daniel chapter 8 verse 1 and 8.27, it does seem like Daniel still functioned in some sort of bureaucratic capacity. Now whether he was relegated to a lower position by subsequent kings who didn't like him, we don't know. But just as Moses tells us in Exodus 1.8 that a new king arose in Egypt who did not know Joseph and by implication did not know Joseph's God. So here we find ourselves looking at Belshazzar who needs to be reminded about Daniel and his God-given interpretive abilities. But friends, here's what, what's important for us to see. Notice how the queen remembers him. Look at the text. This Daniel, whom the king named Belteshazzar. Think about that. Despite Nebuchadnezzar's assimilation and his training and his planning, despite all those years of being in the courts of wicked kings, despite the pressures of Babylon to conform, despite the temptations to idolatry, how is he remembered as this Daniel? Daniel, you know what that is? That is a testimony to his faithful witness. The king named him Belteshazzar, but we remember him. We remember his name, Daniel. Beloved, your identity is determined by God. Not by your parents or your education or your culture or your context. And when you resign, one day you will resign from your current jobs. One day you will leave this place or leave your current workplace. How will they remember you? Will they remember you as that, oh, that Filipino man who worked on the third floor? Or that Keralite man? Or that woman from Kenya? Or will they remember you as that Christian man who worked in accounts? That Christian woman who taught grade six. What is it that people will remember about you? What kind of witness will you leave behind? 
Mothers, how do you want to be remembered by your children after you're long gone? Do you want to be remembered mainly for your recipes? Or how you were this worry wart or disrespectful to their father? Or do you want them to remember how quick to repent you were? How you loved Christ, how you loved his word, how you loved to tell others about Jesus, how you didn't just listen to the sermons but applied those truths to your heart in such a way that your transformation was evident to all at home. Would they remember how you loved to minister to others in need? And how your home was always a sweet haven of kindness and love and hospitality? Or would they remember you as someone who was so wrapped up with her cultural ways that she had no taste for heaven's joys? Who would they remember? Daniel or Belteshazzar? Beloved, we are called to be in the world, but not of it. As citizens of the world to come, we are called to be shining lights in a dark world that is under God's judgment. Your witness matters. Your everyday faithfulness in the mundane things of life matters. And yes, even in your old age, just like Daniel, your faithfulness matters. Daniel is called in and he interprets the writing as a pronouncement of judgment. Which brings us to our fourth point. We hear a pronouncement of judgment. Look at verses 13 onwards. Then Daniel was brought in before the king. He was summoned. The king answered and said to Daniel, You are that Daniel, one of the exiles of Judah, whom the king my father brought from Judah. Notice how he addresses Daniel. Even after being humiliated, by the terror of God's presence, this man airs his pomposity. Now you are that exile from Judah. Now Belshazzar wants to put Daniel in his place. Despite who he was and all his years of service to the empire, Daniel is told, I own you. Don't forget that. But you have an impressive resume, I see. Verse 14. I've heard of you that the spirit of the gods is in you and that light and understanding and excellent wisdom are found in you. Now the wise men, the enchanters, have been brought in before me to read this writing and make known to me its interpretation. But they could not show the interpretation of the matter. But I have heard, you just heard, Mr. Soggy Pants, but I have heard that you can give interpretations and solve problems. Now, if you can read the writing and make known to me its interpretation, you shall be clothed with purple and have a chain of gold around your neck and shall be third ruler in the kingdom. And Daniel answered and said before the king, Let your gifts be for yourself and give your rewards to another. Nevertheless, I will read the writing to the king and make known to him the interpretation. See, Daniel is not being rude. He's merely saying, my services are not for sale. You may own me, but you can't buy my integrity. And we've seen this from the beginning, haven't we? 
in the face of adversity, Daniel's allegiance has always been to the Lord. So I'll interpret this, he says. But I'm not doing this for wealth or power. I'm not like the rest of your lords. But instead of reading the writing straight away, Daniel recalls how much Belshazzar had already known. Look at the text. Before he interprets words of judgment, he tells him what led up to it. Verse 18, O king, the most high God gave Nebuchadnezzar your father kingship and greatness and glory and majesty. He gave, note that word. And because of the greatness that he gave him, all peoples, nations, and languages trembled and feared before him. Whom he would, he killed, and whom he would, he kept alive. Whom he would, he raised up, and whom he would, he humbled. Imagine that kind of power. And Daniel said, God gave him that. The Lord was sovereign over that. Friends, always remember this. No man is a self-made man. Not even a tyrant. God gave him that. Verse 20. But when his heart was lifted up and his spirit was hardened so that he dealt proudly, he was brought down from his kingly throne and his glory was taken from him. He was driven from among the children of mankind and his mind was made like that of a beast and his dwelling was with the wild donkeys. He was fed grass like an ox and his body was wet with the dew of heaven until he knew that the Most High God rules the kingdom of mankind and sets over it whom he will. Notice that Daniel holds him responsible for this knowledge. You see, his problem was not ignorance, but high-handed rebellion. Verse 22. And you, his son, Belshazzar have not humbled your heart though you knew all this but you have lifted up yourself against the Lord of heaven and the vessels of his house have been brought in before you and you and your lords your wives and your concubines have drunk wine from them and you have praised the gods of silver and gold of bronze iron wood and stone which do not see or hear or know these man-made idols are non-living pieces of furniture that need to be carried around. They are but the works of foolish men. You have praised those gods who are not really gods. But, but the God in whose hand is your breath and whose are all your ways you have not honored. You've not worshipped the one true God. You have not listened to his word. You haven't learned from his judgments on others. He has not left you without a witness, O king. You should have learned something from God when he made Nebuchadnezzar into an animal. You know, one author writes, one of the most amazing spectacles in this world is how little men really profit from the judgments of God. What about you, beloved? When you read about God's works of judgment, both temporal, those that happen now in this age, and of his coming judgment, does it profit you? Does it stir your soul? 
Does it cause you to lift up your voice in praise and thanksgiving knowing that this is what Jesus has saved you from? Does it cause your heart to burn with passion for God? Does it increase your love for Christ? Does it drive you to your knees in daily repentance and faith? Do you know what you need to function as an arrogant tyrant and to engage in false worship? You need to be alive to do that. Daniel says, this God, the one whose everlasting kingdom is coming, this God holds your very breath, Belshazzar. When you were lifting up your wine glass in those holy vessels, when you were dancing on the tables, mocking God, he was keeping you alive. Brothers, when you are yelling at your wife, he's holding your breath. You're happily clicking that mouse. Seeing things you shouldn't be seeing. Your savior while being grieved is sustaining your heartbeat. And if he wills, you will drop dead. Can you imagine the irony of this? For you to be able to sin, to mock God, you need to be kept alive by him. Let the reality of God's judgment drive you. Let it drive you to take refuge in Christ and overcome sin in the strength of his power. You know, that day God informed Belshazzar that unlike Nebuchadnezzar whom he sovereignly decided to humble and restore, he told him, I have sovereignly decided that your time is up. This was Daniel's interpretation after exposing Belshazzar's folly. Look at verse 24. Then from his presence, the hand was sent. And this writing was inscribed. And this is the writing that was inscribed. Mene, Mene, Tekel, and Parson. You know, the writing on the wall by the finger of God ought to remind you of the Ten Commandments. Written on tablets of stone. Written by the very finger of God. You see that in Exodus 31 verse 18. Mene, Mene, Tekel, and Parson. Now these are all terms used to describe weights that are used on an old-fashioned balance scale. These were weights used to measure precious metals. So Mene is a mina, it's about 500-600 grams. Tekel is a shekel, it's about 10 grams, give or take. Parson is like half a mina. So each of these words also, in addition to being weights, they also sound like different Aramaic words. So mene sounds like the word for numbered. Tekel sounds like the word for weighed. And parson sounds like the word for divided. But parson is also a play on the word Persians. And so Daniel, inspired by God's spirit, gives the interpretation. Verse 26, this is the interpretation of the matter. Mene, God has numbered the days of your kingdom and brought it to an end. Your time is up, Belshazzar. See, God had sovereignly determined how long this man would live and how many days the Babylonian empire would last. That should give you pause when you take God's grace for granted, his sovereignty for granted, and think, I'll repent next week. 
No man is the captain of his destiny. Only God is. Verse 27. Tekel, you have been weighed in the balances and found wanting. Friend, no matter how great you think you are, how glorious you are, how much you have achieved, it is ultimately God's scales that matters. And when he weighs you, every sinner will fall short. Even the most righteous man will be a featherweight on the scales compared to God's standards of holiness and righteousness. Belshazzar was found light, wanting, morally deficient. And then Paris, your kingdom is divided and given to the Medes and the Persians. It's as though God had broken his kingdom in two, divided it and handed over to the Medes and the Persians. Now, this would have been shocking for Belshazzar to hear this pronouncement of judgment over him and his kingdom. But friends, this was a long time coming. This was a long time coming. Almost 200 years earlier, it was also prophesied and written by Isaiah. In Isaiah 47 verses 10 to 11 about the humiliation and fall of the Babylonian empire. Listen to what Isaiah says. You felt secure in your wickedness. You said, no one sees me. Your wisdom and your knowledge led you astray. And you said in your heart, I am and there is no one besides me. But evil shall come upon you. Which you will not know how to charm away. Disaster shall fall upon you for which you will not be able to atone. And ruin shall come upon you suddenly of which you know nothing. It was prophesied by Isaiah and Jeremiah and even in, by Daniel. In chapter 2, if you remember, that Babylon will be judged and will come to an end. The only thing that will last, if you remember chapter 2, is God's coming kingdom. That will last forever. His everlasting kingdom, which His Messiah will establish. And friends, that's where we need to set our sights on. That's where we need to put our hope that kingdom did come in the person and work of Jesus Christ. The holy and sinless son of God, that stone that Nebuchadnezzar saw in his dream came in the fullness of time. The God who holds our breath and all our ways in his hands took on finite human flesh in order to save sinners from God's righteous judgment. You see, a holy God stands over every human being because we've all sinned and dishonored him. Like Belshazzar, we have sinned against him by turning away from his word and turning to ourselves. And in our pride, we become like Belshazzar, secure in our blindness and our folly. And when we stand on the scales of God's judgment, we are found wanting, morally deficient. But friends, the good news of the gospel of God's kingdom is that he sent his son to stand on those scales in our place. Jesus stands on the scale in our place and he is found worthy and weighty. When Jesus cast out demons, he was demonstrating that the kingdom of God, that final kingdom that Nebuchadnezzar saw in his dream, he was saying that kingdom is here. If I cast out demons by the finger of God then it means that the kingdom of God has come upon you. You watch as Satan's kingdom and every earthly authority crumbles. That's what he was saying. 
Jesus went to the cross, taking God's judgment on himself, the very sentence of death, so that those who turn away from their rebellion and put their trust in him may be saved from perishing, may be saved and given the gift of eternal life, the joy of being citizens in that everlasting kingdom. Friends, we were so arrogant. We were so arrogant that we thought that the God who holds our very breath, we thought we can take his breath away. We put him to death. But he rose from the dead to give us new life. Everlasting life. Because Christ stood on those scales, his weightiness, his righteousness is counted to us as a gift of grace through faith. Oh friends, God has not left us without a witness. He has told us this in his written word. And it would be utterly foolish of you to reject his gospel. Friend, if you don't know Christ as your savior, then remember this, he stands over you as your judge. So turn away from your sins and your folly and turn to Christ. To rebel against God is to cut off the branch you're sitting on. That's what it is. Think about the foolishness of that. Don't be a fool who mocks God or his gospel message. He's a gracious and forgiving God. He's holding your breath even now. Turn to him through Jesus Christ and he will not cast you away. But if you don't, remember this you will reap what you sow. If you reject him after all that you have heard, you will not inherit the kingdom of God. Oh friend, flee from the wrath to come. Flee from the eternal judgment of hell and flee to Christ. He is mighty to save. You know, if you're wondering where the expression, the writing is on the wall came from, it's from here. You know, we use that expression whenever an inevitable result or imminent danger has become apparent. For example, someone might say, oh, we knew he was going to get fired. The writing was on the wall. We saw the signs. Well, friend, what was that very night for Belshazzar could be this very night for you. Humble yourself under the mighty hand of God. Turn from your sins and trust in Jesus. Don't wait for a miraculous sign. The writing may not appear on the wall today because it doesn't have to. It doesn't have to. The writing is here. It's written here. Every one of these words is true. Listen to John 20 verse 31. These are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. Don't do what Belshazzar did. You know, Belshazzar hears this interpretation of his coming doom and he responds poorly. His response is so poor, it's almost a non-response. Look at the text, verses 29 to 31. Then Belshazzar gave the command and Daniel was clothed with purple. A chain of gold was put around his neck and a proclamation was made about him that he should be the third ruler in the kingdom. No words of repentance. It's as if all he was interested in was cracking the co code. 
in spite of having all that information doesn't guarantee a right response does it be careful when you approach god's word are you only interested in cracking the code or does god's word transform you Belshazzar merely issues a command and he gives what he promised. Why do you think he does that? You're going to die, Belshazzar. Here's a gold chain. Why do you think he does that? I'll tell you why. Because after all has been said, Belshazzar is still only concerned with what people will think of him than what god thinks well i promise this so i better keep my end of the bargain otherwise what will people think of me see belshazzar fails to see the folly of his pride and then we hear these chilling words verse 30 that very night belshazzar the chaldean king was killed You know historians tell us that the Medo-Persians dug beneath Babylon's impenetrable walls and they assassinated him. One moment he was partying, that very night he's gone. You know Belshazzar reminds us of that rich fool in Luke 12 who said to himself, "So, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, be merry." But God said to him, "Fool, this night your soul is required of you." and the things you have prepared whose will they be verse 31 and Darius the Mede received the kingdom being about 62 years old you know Darius's age is mentioned not just for historical reasons but his age seems to be part of the riddle on the wall if you take those weights and add them up all together as money you know, convert them into monetary units you get 62 which is the age of the coming king who's going to overthrow babylon But that's not important. What's important to see is what God wants both the Israelites and us to see. Look at that passive verb. Darius received the kingdom. One kingdom has been overthrown. God is still sovereign. Darius receives it. God will always be sovereign. Beloved because God is sovereign over sin and evil and evil rulers that's why we're saved the cross screams that in the face of the worst evil God is sovereign and he will deliver his people and none can stay his hand and that's the whole point of this story isn't it whether we have wicked governments or wicked kings no matter what the opposition or frustration we might face in this age as we wait for the return of our king we must remember who's really in charge whose word counts eternally who has all authority in heaven and on earth and to whom we must swear allegiance beloved this world is babylon and the lord calls us his saints not to participate in her sins because one day As Revelation 18 says, she will be judged in a single day. Beloved, I hope that the judgment of the Lord gives you great comfort. I hope that it gives you great comfort today both in the face 
of suffering and temptation, to know that there is a higher throne. And our lives in exile ought to be lived before that throne. Hopeful in the face of trial and bold and defiant in the face of sin and temptation. Live as citizens of an everlasting kingdom. Live like Christians. Let's pray. Father, we praise you for the new life that we have received in Christ Jesus our Lord. His robes for mine. Oh, wonderful exchange. Lord, would you help us now to fix our eyes on him. To remember that he is our refuge and strength. To remember that he is risen and that he reigns over all. Hold fast to us, O Lord, so that we might despise our sin, marvel at your grace, and endure to the end. In Christ's name we pray.